Hi everyone, this is the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Saya and this is a very special episode because I got to chat to one of my all-time favourite songwriters, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. Uh, Jeff was in Australia recently playing some solo shows and was kind enough to make time to sit down with me before he soundcheck at the Powerhouse in Brisbane. Um, so we had a really fun chat. We actually talked about his book quite a lot, which you should all get immediately. It's called Let's Go So We Can Get Back. I highly recommend it. Um, and then later he played a show which was really great. I'm sure everyone who's been to one of his solo shows would agree that these kinds of shows are just so truly indicative of what a fantastic writer he is and how the songs can speak uh, to people stripped down just as much as in a band environment, if not more, in my opinion. As you may or may not know, I ask all my guests at the end of the podcast about their strangest show experience or about a strange thing that's happened to them. And I get a different person to illustrate this moment however they like. I gave Jeff some examples of what other people had said. So I told him the Courtney Barnett story about Patti Smith. I cut this bit out because Courtney just tells this way better than I did at the time. And if you're interested in her Patti Smith story, you can listen to uh, that episode. Um, but this is why he mentions my reference to Patti Smith. So just some background for you there. The show story was illustrated by my friend Davy Lane, who some of you may know as the incredible guitarist from the band UMI. Davy is a big fan of Wilco's as well, and I'm so happy he's involved in this podcast. Also, if you look closely, you may see a reference to an album cover from 1975, which is one of his faves. So sneaky homage by Davy. See if you can guess what album cover it is. Uh, there's also a very nerdy reference to Fred Sonic Smith's MC5 Rickenbacker, which I absolutely love. As always, you can see the strange show story illustrations on Instagram at Hearsay Podcast or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Remember that all of these episodes have swearing in them and this one is no different. So if you are offended by that kind of thing, I'm very sorry. Uh, like and subscribe and leave me a review if you like it. I really appreciate all of your comments and feedback. Thank you, Jen, for helping to make this happen. Thanks, Mirko, for editing support. We had a very small problem of a noisy vent, but I think we fucked it off. I hope you all enjoy this very casual chat between Jeff and I. I loved talking to him and I found him to be very kind and hilarious. Uh, this is Hearsay episode number 41, Jeff Tweedy. Thanks so much for talking to me, Jeff. Oh, my pleasure. I really appreciate you making the time. I'm worried I'm like cutting into nap time. Oh, everyone is always cutting into <laughs> nap time. So don't be, don't worry about it. Have you ever napped too close to a gig? Uh, no, I don't think so. Something won't allow me to sleep too late. I'm, I don't ever sleep for very long to begin with. Right. So that's kind of why I, I nap a lot. It's like if I, when the kids were in school, if I had to get up at like six to get them ready, I'd get up at four because I right. couldn't. And oh, okay, okay, I know I have to come here for an interview. So yeah, if I took a nap this afternoon, I would have been up two hours before this. Right. And that's just your internal body clock. Yeah. Just like I'm only able to really relax when I 
pretty positive that I'm not going to be, nothing is, I'm not needed. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have no I, other way to say it. <laughs> useless. That's good. It's like your body knows when you're needed. <laughs> the problem is, is that when you have adult children, there are long, like stretches up to months where you're not needed. That's right. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's like hibernation. <laughs> I um I once played a show and my friend and I who played in the band together we napped before the show mm-hmm. and then woke up to about forty eight phone calls of the other band members panicking like where the fuck were we oh no and then we like stumbled on stage I feel like I was still asleep for mm. like the first twenty minutes of the show I've gotten up pretty close to sound check a few times I have to say and. It's never been a problem. The only thing that I've ever experienced that really puts the show at risk is eating oh, too yeah. close to showtime. When and then you get burpy. And, and you're digesting and yeah. you're slow. And, and um, yeah, I, I try not to do that. Yeah, or bubbly beverages before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't, I stop drinking all liquids an hour before the show. Really? Otherwise, I, I panic and I feel like I have to pee the whole show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I find my body absorbed like any, any Urine? Like, need to wee. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I get on stage, I feel like my body just goes. I'm really? Fine. See, I don't. I can't even take a sip of water on stage because I'll instantly start thinking I have to wow. pee. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Is it? I'm so glad. <laughs> Is this we the spoke kind of stuff this? that you were really wanting? <laughs> I mean, you flew me down here. I know, specifically to ask you about your <laughs> urine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's important to talk about. For too long now, people have afraid to talk about that's it. right as, um, as specifically um urinating if there's while... just one person out there <laughs> that's hearing this that needs to hear it to feel free to talk about their problems with urine i feel like i've done my job yeah we, we could start a support group for it, people that <laughs> need to talk about it that's have psychological disorders that yeah. make them feel like they have to <laughs> See? Or are interested in why your body would absorb any nervous wheeze. <laughs> yeah. Let's move I on. I mean, if you, if, <laughs> we could talk the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. It does go away. I will say that that's the, that's how the, how it works. It definitely, def, definitely goes away, but it, for me, it's a distracting thought. Anyway. Yeah. yeah go yeah. ahead. Okay. Where, are we, I, where were we heading? So- <laughs> I um I wanted to tell you I had a really funny experience reading your book because um I was reading your book uh like a physical copy of your book at night time and then during the day while I was on the move I was listening to Nikki Six from Motley Crue's Heroin Diaries audiobook uh-huh. and I I'm not comparing yours to his in mm. many ways except <laughs> that it was sort of this beautiful juxtaposition of introspective thoughts mm-hmm. and addiction mm-hmm. um and and then my book and, <laughs> and then your book no I felt like um it was a funny thing for me to to read or to listen to at the same time and absorb because I felt like yours was like you know quite funny and gentle mm-hmm. and his was very arrogant and mm-hmm. um pretty grim really um yeah. but, <laughs> but then like at the end also slightly redeeming but I wanted to read you um because I had this really w- weird sort of like dual um experience i wanted to like take one quote about addiction from him and then one from you mm-hmm. um so he said uh they say a dog is the first to smell his own shit i think a drug addict is the last 
And then the, the best quote from you that I saw in your book about addiction was, there's never enough drugs to keep up with keeping me normal. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to Nikki Six's quote? Uh, <laughs> I, I imagine he could relate to yours. I'll ask him when I interview yeah, him. Yeah, I hope everyone know how that goes. Uh, the, yeah, I think all, all addicts have a lot in common. Um, and that's good and bad. I mean, I think that makes the initial treatment of addiction pretty uniform and universal, and it can be pretty simple, you know. Um, one of the ways, places that I think we struggle treating addiction is taking into account the um, just the scope of human experience. And once you get past that initial uh, commonality, um, I think that there's there aren't a lot of like tried and true approaches to making a person whole without identifying them as an addict still, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but yeah, I totally relate to that. It sounds like something he might've heard in a, in a meeting, like yeah, in a 12 step meeting. <laughs> That's a pretty interesting thought experiment though, to listen to those two books or like you know, consume both of, the, both of those books side by side. It was interesting. And I think, I mean, I, I love reading autobiographies, especially when they're music related, because I'm a really big fan of music. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not particularly a big fan of Motley Crue, but I think it's so interesting that they live that life, like that was their reality. Motley Crue, yeah, it's fascinating. They're like a, um, as like a anthropologist or something. So yeah, it's just, a strange period at the end of rock access. Yeah. You know, where LA bands could live like that. They got uh, everything. Like they didn't have to do anything. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> our stories couldn't be more different. I know. <laughs> I know. That's why it was weird for me. It's, but it was. I almost <laughs> called my book How to Succeed in Music by Really, Really Trying. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I, I mean, I think it was really interesting, and I don't mean to compare your um, addiction to his addiction, but oh no, it that's... was um, it was very interesting for me to see the differences and also see like some kind of similarity or through line. Well, that's actually what I mean. I don't take any offense at being compared to anyone's addiction. Like the 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 part that is universal is the part that you really need to be aware of, and. And he, that's where his quote actually is, you know, rings very true mm. because when an addict is deep in their addiction, they're, they're much more focused on how they're different than any other addict. And, yes, that's know, right. And the, how they're, you know, they, they're not on the streets or they're, no. you know, like I'm, I'm okay because I still have a house and, that's right. you know. So to change topic a little bit, I normally start these interviews with asking my guests what their first memory of music is or Mm -hmm. the first time you knew that you wanted to do that. Do -hmm. you have any point like that in your life? Uh, The answer I always give for this question is is pretty unsatisfying, I think, (laughs) but it's but but it's true. I don't remember a period in my life where it wasn't how I saw myself even way before I could play music, um, I, I think I, I, I projected myself into the world of the listen, when I was listening, like, like it was something I could do. 
My mother claims that I would stand and cry and point at the stereo until she put, would, would put a record on. So, I mean, that was the story she told people. Um, so I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that, that I can't really visualize a time like, you know, I don't have a memory of thinking, oh, I really want to be something else. Yeah. I mean, I really liked baseball when I was a little kid. Um, and I think, I guess I grew up in a culture of disbelief about that as much as music, you know, like that wasn't something that was, no, nobody was telling me I was going to be a major league baseball player. Did you want to be that? Uh, I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think that that seemed likely, but yeah. I did like it. Yeah. Do you remember a song though that you loved as a child or? I know you told everybody that you wrote a Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> I would have told them it was my album. It, was it wasn't album. just the song. <laughs> was there any song that you were like, this is what I want to do? Um, or this is something that really gets me in the chest or in the heart? I mean, yeah, early on I, I know that I really responded to like Hans Christian Andersen, mm. music, you know, like Danny Kaye. I had all of... I would I, I inherited all of the records from all of everyone in our family, like aunts and uncles, because it was the thing I loved so much. So I ended up with really old records. Um, I think the first truly uh, profound connection was with Turn, Turn, Turn by oh, the yeah. Birds, you know, where I I. Um, I don't know. I just became a part of my identity, whereas uh, Judy Garland and, and Shirley Temple and black and white musicals and things like that that I watched with my mother were, I really enjoyed them, but I didn't, I felt like it was sharing something with my mom. Yeah. You know? And I suppose with, with that kind of musical sort of stuff, it's not real. you couldn't really imagine yourself in that environment, but you could right. with like a 12-string yeah. birdsy kind of vibe. Well, yeah, there was... You know that song was still played on the radio occasionally, yeah. and I had a I had a seven inch of it from my sister and my aunt, um, who had bought it when it was new. Um, but uh, you know, it's so weird to think about. There's like there's so much less time between when that record came out and when it came to me than there is between now. And when our first records came out, that's right. You know, so, so it's, it is strange. It doesn't seem like things really change anymore. We don't have mass cultures that that like recycle and change and and like oh that's coming back. It's all happening all at once, all the time. So it's it's strange. It's hard to explain to my kids how much of an anomaly it was, even though that song might still get played on an AM station. Mm. But it would have been completely forgotten on current radio. Yeah, right. I have a, a connection with that song too because I had a mixtape that, that I'd had from my dad's records and it mm -hmm. was like The Birds and Bus Stop, The Hollies mm -hmm. and um, a few other things. And I thought that it was one band that was like mm -hmm. one magical band. Like <laughs> I think it had Needles and Pins by The mm -hmm. Searchers. And, right. Um, and so I just thought, well, I love all of that music. I love that band. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that band, to be fair, is probably the Beatles. Yeah, true. Or, yeah. you know, everything Beatles adjacent. Yeah, that's but the, right. But the birds were manufactured to some degree to be like a West Coast version of the Beatles. Yeah, that's right. 
I read an interview with you where you were talking about the Beatles and saying like basically the only bands that you like are the Beatles and Devo. Is that still the case? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think they're both pretty unassailable. Yeah. Um, a lot of other, I don't know, I'm not very interested in, this is going to sound like virtue signaling, but I, but it's, it's honest to God truth. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm not very interested in white men's plight right. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and neither one of those bands really, uh, I don't know, wallowed in it. Yeah, You know, That's like true. a lot of punk rock and a lot of things that were I associate with my era of listening to music. I, I have a like, kind of overwhelming feeling that I, I'm not as interested anymore, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, I understand that. But, I, but I, I mean, I love tons of bands. I, and I love a lot of bands that are problematic, you know, like I like I love the faces and, sure. you know, and the like some of the footage of the faces playing rock and roll music has this aura of just being infallible. Like yeah. there's, it's completely loose, but there's no way they could fuck up. And when yeah. they do... Are you allowed to say that? Yeah, you can, I, you can say can't if you want. Yeah, okay, I don't. It's a habit. I don't. But I'm not. I'm not going to change that right now. <laughs> but um, but you know, like even when they fuck up, it's it's in it's incorporated into their their. It, that to me is interesting because I love the idea of that kind of liberation mm. and that kind of um, self-actualization, like just freeing yourself from these burdens of like status quo and yeah. constraint, societal constraint and all these things. But they're singing about like, you know, 14 year old girls and That's stuff, right. you know? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it gets really, really sketchy. You know. But you still, you can sort of see past that? Because I know it's a conversation that's happening so much at the moment. Like, can you see past the person or their views and enjoy their art? I find it really difficult because I like I like a lot of um, obnoxious hip-hop. Mm-hmm. I do find it hard with uh, a lot of music. And, and it's, one of been, it's been one of the barriers for me truly believing in a lot of hip-hop, to yeah. be honest. Um, even though my kids tell me, who are you know super woke and super you know uh you know judgmental about a lot of things sure. but um i think that there's a subtle kind of racism in giving that a pass when there's like egregious misogyny and in and uh you know it's like oh it's part of the culture well like that's pretty it's is, it, yeah. is that okay? Yeah. yeah. I know. I struggle with it because I love um, Cool Keith and Dr. Mm-hmm. Octagon and stuff, and that's mm-hmm. just vile, you know. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. Oh, that's, some of it, yeah, it's just beyond vile. Yeah. And, and it's also also super inspiring music to me because, um, because it has no – it's not beholden to the past ever. Mm. It's always pushing forward. All rock music to me sounds like fear-based music that's complicit at yeah. this point in time. I get really um, – I get really distracted by that notion that most records are made from this place of I want to hang on to what I have, you know, and and in that way, I think like white male bands, rock bands in particular, always sound a little scared to me, you know, but but hip hop has this this this, you know, momentum 
that is freeing itself constantly from any notion of legacy or the past. And, and in some ways, I think that that's problematic too. And it's probably because they had their culture ripped away from them so frequently that they stopped saying, okay, you can have that. Once I've done it, it it's over with. And that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, but I'm always much more inspired by the sonic the sonics yeah, of it, the, the where, where they're pointing yeah. forward always. I was really excited when one of your interviews, you're the only person who's ever mentioned Isaiah Tamita. <laughs> and I listen to uh, Snowflakes are dancing all the time. It's like my <laughs> husband and my like Sunday morning <laughs> record. That's awesome. And I was really excited that you mentioned it. But mm. is that something that you can talk about? That was, in a, that was a record that was in the... the um, the master stash oh, yeah? that was given to me by, by my brother. Wow. Um, was he into experimental he, whatever, stuff? Whatever, I don't know where he found out about all of this different music, and I've never asked him, um, but it was, I, w I would imagine it would have been like the state-of-the-art um, college DJ stash sure. from that time period, from the, from the mid-70s and late-70s. Yeah. So I had like, Craftwork and Amandul and Aphrodite's Child and all of these crazy foreign imports of of Edgar Froshi wow. and Tangerine Dream and that's and, amazing. Yeah, that's so, what a what a thing to discover as a kid. Then yeah, it's like I, I haven't I haven't really wandered wandered too far from from those two things. You yes. know, like <laughs> like the monkeys and yeah. and, and the birds and and um still sort of feeling you know i don't know this uh modern streak i wanted to talk about your the, your first musical relationship and you talk really in a lovely way about jay farrar in your mm -hmm. book um what i loved the most about it was you talked about music sounded better with him and i've definitely had people in my life where music changes depending on who's there Mm -hmm. And I love that notion of with you guys, it was a positive thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, right or wrong, all of my friends my whole life have been chosen by that one criteria primarily is, is whether or not they can um, just be quiet and listen to music with me. Yeah. And, and, then I, and I can feel the music still. As if, I mean, it's better to listen to music with people, mm -hmm. but for a lot of my life, I've spent my life listening to music alone because it's hard to find people that aren't anxious to go yeah. somewhere else or yeah. <laughs> preoccupied or, totally. you know, um, so when you find, yeah, someone that, 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 uh, I don't know, enhances the listening experience, I like, tend to hang on to them. I love that. I really love that notion because I definitely, even for me, I think different times of the day can make a difference to how a song sounds. Yeah, when I'm working at the studio, every time somebody comes by, I take advantage of, you know, because the people that come by the studio are other musicians and friends and, and my, you know, my kids and their friends and, like, um, you know, different people from our, our community. And they're almost all people that I can listen to music with. And so, nice. so I'll ask them, hey, sit down. What, do you want to check out what, what we're working on? And and I can always, it, it's so valuable. It can really make me feel like I'm on to something or, or 
kind of clearly underline something that's not right. About yeah, what's well, like reading out loud too, isn't it? You, oh, like exactly. You kind of have to do it. To... I, had, I read my my whole book out loud, um, even before I did the audible version. But yeah. you know, like just as it was as I was going, it was the only way I could learn how to write prose because it's something I never really aspired to do. Yeah. Do you feel like you might want to do more of that? Um, I don't think I have a a strong desire to write fiction. Uh, I feel like you would be good at it. I feel like I would I would run into the problems that I was able to circumvent by having to be honest and truthful. Sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. like the problems I could like I could circumvent would be that my natural attention wanders to um, details and and you know abstraction and. And I think without the constraints of trying to tell a clear and honest story, um, I could do, I could write thinly veiled fiction, perhaps. <laughs> maybe junior fiction. Is that, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, if I ever, yeah, I guess I'd have to have a really clear outline mm. and story to adhere to. Yeah. Did you learn anything about your own writing during the process? Mistakes that you maybe rectified? Um, words that you didn't like? No, I, I think that... For the most part, I've written words that I can still sing, you know, and for the most part, there aren't too many songs that I don't um, want to sing. And a lot of the words have stopped being representative, even. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they're just a part of this melody and a part of this song and their sounds. And, and then I get feedback when I perform them from an audience and things like that, that all it all exists on a different plane than my judgment over whether or not a lyric is good or a poem is good Mm. and and that's all fine and i used to really rely upon that in a way that i feel like is a little bit of a cop-out because i do think that you can kind of string any few words together and a meaning will attach itself to it and um i like abstraction i like impressionistic kind of vague but I do think it's it's easier. It's way easier than writing a really clear, direct song. I think that takes a lot more revisions, a lot more like um, effort to stand up for something and actually say something. And yeah. and I think writing the book forced me to to try a little harder to yeah. like get the the lyrics I was writing for the solo records to kind of match that intent. Yeah, I've, I imagine that would have been complicated, sort of writing in two completely different ways. Yeah, they're like I, I think I think they're kind of photo negatives of each other. Yeah, but a lot of lyrics I was writing and I had finished. I felt like I had finished when I was right after I'd written more of the book. I would go back and go, "This is silly. I'm just this close to saying what I meant to say," you know. So we'll, let me you know, try a little bit harder to get to something a little bit clearer about, I don't know, that's a little harder to sing, actually, a little bit more revealing. Yeah. And and, um, it can get really lazy about that. Definitely. And especially when you write a lot of songs, and I write a a lot of songs. Yeah, it's much easier to disguise the meaning. Sure. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like I no. said, you know, like the, the music itself, sometimes it's good to not like be too distracting. Um, I always find it, you know, there's certain melodies that can't withstand 
good lyrics, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Like, I don't think, you know, you're not going to make Bebopalula better. <laughs> That's true. By, by having some point, some poignancy added to That's it. That's true. You know? Well, I'm a really big fan of Harry Nilsson who just like quite often will just like make sounds with his mouth mm-hmm. instead right. of lyrics. Yeah. And it's great. Yeah. It, it means something to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, again, it's like it's music is a, a way to liberate yourself from language. And, yeah. And, and if you could tell people a melody, you wouldn't need a melody. So that's it's, right. It's superior for sure. I mean. You know, or it gets to some place that we can't get other in other ways. Yeah. You um you say in the book there's this beautiful thing, uh, a story that you tell about recording into a, your wife's dictaphone and you imagine what a teenage you would want to listen to next. Do you still imagine what a teenage you might want to listen to next before you write a song? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I felt like I was still a teenage me mm. at that time. Um, I still listen to tons and tons of music, so I, I, but I still do that. I still think what would, what would I want to hear next? Yeah. And I think it's a really imaginative way of staying tuned in to uh, being a listener um, above being a songwriter or a performer. Or, you know, I think... You should be able to listen to yourself. You should trick yourself into being able to listen to what you're doing as often as you can. It's enjoyable, for one. Mm. And I love being able to drive around and listen to stuff I'm making and working on. Um, It's it's one of my great, like, pleasures in life is, like, just, like, make something. It wasn't there. I get in the car. I put it on and, like, drive home and listen to it. And, like, oh, that's pretty amazing. That wasn't there. Um, next day I might get up and listen to it on the way back to the studio and think it's terrible, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, I don't know. I just think that you should stay, stay kind of tuned into the idea that that's, that's the activity that you're, you're aiming for. And that's kind of old fashioned in a way. I don't know. A lot of music gets consumed in, in different ways than, than the ways we've been talking about it in this conversation. Mm. It's like we're talking about pretty in, intent or uh, intentional types of listening, whereas music is everywhere all the time now. But do you worry that, so have, writing something every day, creating something every day, do you worry that, you know, one day, maybe after you're long gone, someone is going to like cash in on heaps of stuff that you may mm-hmm. not like that. Maybe the songs that you've listened to on the way back to the studio and thought, oh, I oh, hope no. so. I think that <laughs> what, what difference is it going to make to me? That's true. It'd be the greatest thrill of my life. If I was able to know that people would find some joy and pleasure in listening to that. In a lot of ways, there's a purity that I wish I could have in, in the way that that would be received. Mm-hmm. compared to the way I have to put out music into the world yeah. where I have an ego attached to it and I have a persona attached to it. And and I obviously have an aim of some commercial viability or whatever. And, and because of all of those things, one of the things that's frustrating after years of making records is that it's harder and harder and harder for pe- people to accept your output in the spirit that it was intended yeah you know like in other words i've 
I wish it was always accepted more um, as a form of sharing, not as being foisted upon you yeah. or, or like you have to have an opinion about this or, you know, like. Do you mean even though, you know, in terms of listening to a whole album, people don't even really do that anymore. So you're sort of putting your heart and soul into something that might be consumed in a completely different way. I, yeah, I don't really know what I'm getting at. All I, all I know is that what I'm getting at is rooted in this feeling that um, it hurts way worse to get a mediocre review than it does oh, to yeah. get a bad review or a good review. You know, that it's, um, it just can be so dismissed, you know. Do you read reviews? I do. I think I should be able to take it. Yeah. Can you take it? <laughs> yeah, I can. I mean, I'm still here. You are still here. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't shrivel up into a ball and like, you know, if that was going to happen, it would have happened a long time ago. I remember my worst review ever. Mm -hmm. um, my first band, we released an EP and mm. uh, a reviewer wrote like all this positive stuff. It was really lovely and really great. And then um, the last line said, but on repeat listen, you want to throw it into oncoming traffic. Oh, wow. Which to me, I would read that and think, this person was afraid to stand up for something that they liked. Yeah. I don't know if I took it that way. <laughs> so they hedged their bets and, and, and reviewed something and said, I really like this. Not really. Well, That's a positive but, way to see it. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the really the important thing to remember, and I'm not the, I'm not, I don't know who said this first, but it, it always comes up when I think about this is that you shouldn't take, criticism from people you wouldn't ask for advice and and it's true so you can read criticism but you don't have to take it on board yeah um i mean i think we we all laughed but yeah it stuck it hurt it, yeah you remembered it <laughs> i remembered it yeah i i want the dialogue i want the conversation so that's why i read stuff too mm. you know and i feel like to to get that to feel a part of that i should be able to take the indifference or the negativity or um, just sometimes even astute observations, you know, like you can, there are times where, you know, oh, they're right. I didn't try as hard. Yeah. Or, or, I don't know about that. I feel like I've, I don't feel like I've ever not really tried hard, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Those ones where you probably want to write back and go, excuse me, I tried really hard yeah. on this. And yeah. <laughs> You make a record like, yeah, like this. Fucker. <laughs> yeah, Write your own songs. Um, can I ask you, I, I don't normally do this, but because um, this meant a lot to me when I was younger because Summer Teeth came out when I was um, at uni and I always loved the line, fell in love in the key of C because my interpretation of that was there were no sharps or flats. And that would be that would be the kind of love that I was falling in <laughs> at the time. What did you mean by that? Well, I think it had a couple of different meanings. One, it just sounded nice and, and felt like, um, I mean, it had a rhyme that I could use and it and, uh, would have been good enough just for that, in my opinion, uh, as a lyric. Uh, but you like fell in love with music playing. Yeah, you know? like that would have been the ultimate simple interpretation. But I think that I kept it and 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 felt good about it because um, C is like the first chord I ever learned on the guitar. Oh, really? Yeah, and so um, 
I just thought it meant like f like falling in love in the most basic, the most the simplest way. Yeah. No shops or flats. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so you're right. I didn't Thanks. think of it like that because I just learned about sharps and flats not not very long ago. But um, I wanted to talk to you about your amazing band, especially your drummer Glenn. He's mm -hmm. I could watch him play for hours. I just think he's one of those drummers that yeah, you would almost look at him rather than anyone else on stage mm -hmm. when he's playing. Yeah, he's a freak. I mean, he's. He's um, a one of a kind. I don't know of any other drummer that approaches the drums the same way he does. Um, he's a percussion major and he's a composer. And it's really, really exciting and um, uh, inspiring to work with him because I can ask him to do things that you would never ask another drummer to do, mm. you know. That's so I, you know, because cool. I know that he can do them, or that he can approach the drum kit in a different way. He can approach each each drum as its own thing. You could record his whole drum kit one piece at a time, and it nobody would ever know that it was like done that way. But you, but but he can play all of the different parts like that. The only other drummers I can think of that I have that you know I've seen live a, a few times, and I watched probably more than anyone else is. Um, Greg from Deerhoof, who oh, I yeah. think you've done some work with, mm -hmm. and um, John Convertino from Calexico. Mm -hmm. He's one of those drummers, I think, who could do anything. Probably, yeah. 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 I thought you were going to say Jim White. Oh, yeah, Jim White's next level. <laughs> I love Jim White. Last time I saw him, I went um, vacuum shopping with him. Oh, nice. <laughs> Was it to vacuum him? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. He's I always pretty it. disheveled. Yes. I was in New York and I was, um, I used to sell vacuums when I was like 19 or I worked in a, a small electrical store uh -huh. um, and we were having a cup of coffee and as he was like, I need to buy a vacuum. I was like, I have retained a lot of information <laughs> about <laughs> vacuums. Wow. Um, but yeah, so Greg from Deerhoof, I've got that little seven inch that you uh -huh. guys did with the, the song with your kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were just talking about this um, playing with family before mm -hmm. we started recording, and how lovely that is. It's the best. Do you miss playing with your family when you're on out on your own? Um, yeah, I, I mean, aside from just missing them, it, yeah, I miss. Um, I get to play with Spencer a lot. He played drums on both of the solo records I just did. He played on the Mavis, the last two Mavis Staples records, and the Tweety record, and. We work on a lot of stuff together. Um, Sammy's been away at school, and he's, in the last few years, really gotten much more serious about wanting to be a part of the Tweety band great. world. And and he's um, you know, he's a great singer, but he's become a really great uh, fingerstyle acoustic guitar great. player. I actually want to hear more of his um, modular synthesizer yeah. project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, he's doing that too, and he's he's been working on a record for about a year and a half. So, and it's really some weird intersection of those two worlds. Wow! It's like almost all finger-picked acoustic guitar and modular synths. Amazing! And Spencer plays drums on it too. So, yeah. You don't have any input. Um, no. In fact, when he started learning how to 
finger pick, Spencer was still away at school and he sent some tracks to Spencer and Spencer wrote me and asked me how Sammy feels about me playing guitar on it. And I said, that's not me, that's your brother. And he was really freaked out. <laughs> but um, I think I play bass on something, but um, it's not heavily uh, promoted. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, I'm gonna ask you my last question, which is the question that I ask everyone. Can you tell me your strangest show experience or just a strange thing that's happened to you because you play music? Um, so many things are running through my head. A lot of, I mean, most of it's been not normal. Um, well, because you mentioned Patti Smith, I just thought of one with Patti Smith. Sure. Actually, I had a couple encounters with Patti Smith First time I met her, she got mad at me because I didn't introduce my wife who was standing with me. Um, I would have gotten to it eventually, but um, but I was too slow. Oh, no. So she ignored me the rest of the night and talked to my wife. <laughs> One time I was playing at a, a benefit, a small dinner that was a benefit in New York City, and I was one of the, the acts and Patty was one of the acts on this this really, I don't know, must have been a really expensive per plate type of benefit. And um, I was told beforehand that Patty might want me to help her play a song. Oh God. And I, so I like I learned because of the night and I like, you know, like refamiliarized myself with, you know, a handful of things and knew how to play them. And when she got there, I went up to her and said, um, I was told that you might want me to like help you out, help you out with a song. And she said, yeah, I really would. And she handed me her guitar and asked me to tune it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. And I tuned her guitar while she went and talked to Michael Stipe. <laughs> and that was it? That's it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, I love that story. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. Thank you.